If you were driving down the road, you might just miss it. Just tucked away at the top of a hill, the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church sits just outside of Tuskegee, Alabama. A small church with horizontal wood siding, painted white and adorned with tall windows. We started our reporting in the early months of 2020, before COVID gripped our world. And even then, the churchyard was quiet, the trees were missing their leaves, not yet grown back for the spring. Rain came down while we were there, and for us, it was a mix of emotions. We were lucky enough to be there, to stand in a place of great history. And what struck us the most was this tree, just off to the left from the entrance of the church, standing as a testament, a witness, to what's happened here for almost 100 years. From 1932 to 1972, more than 600 African-American men, some with syphilis, some without, were followed for 40 years by the U.S. government and left untreated, resulting in the longest-running non-therapeutic research study in American history, the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. About 50 members from this church were recruited for the study and would meet under this tree, which served as a gathering place to meet Nurse Rivers, who would administer medicine, draw blood, or drive them to Tuskegee for treatment. She would remain a famous, if not infamous, figure of the study, maybe one of the most recognizable names from the many doctors and patients whose identities have been obscured by time. In the decades that followed, the study's exposure would bring a multitude of events, including a lawsuit, a government hearing, legislation, and a presidential apology. And finally say, on behalf of the American people, what the United States government did was shameful, and I am sorry. I'm Raina. And I'm Sho. And through WCUG Cougar Radio and PAC Media Network, we are bringing you our reporting on this piece of American history. We wanted to pursue this story to keep the memory and the lessons, the legacy of the Tuskegee study alive. Historical truth is much more complicated than we'd like it to be. Even today, we get parts of this history wrong. Where did these errors come from? Why do they stick around? What kinds of effects does this have on our shared experience? Those of us aware of the study have often been given a narrow set of facts that fail to provide a proper context. We hope to provide a place for the Tuskegee Syphilis Study to sit on the continuum that is history and the human experience. By analyzing our own research journey, we question what it means to learn about events through media, whether it's journalism, film, art, or research. We wanted to explore all of the aspects of the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. There's so many names and there's so many of them. Um, that trying to keep track of everybody and who was who just took forever to learn. You know, I mean, that's the nature of doing historical scholarship. But, but as a small research team, we needed to focus on certain aspects and spend our time making those histories whole. Stay with us as we explore the study of 1932, the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. Prologue, a cast of characters.
The Tuskegee Syphilis Study is a long and complicated piece of history that has tons of moving parts. Right, exactly. I mean, everyone will always touch the elephant in a different way, you know, blindly. But, you know, we, we have a response. I mean, I feel like there's a real responsibility to tell the story correctly, as I said in the book, because if you don't, then people who want to create what I call the counter-narratives, you know, the kind of, oh, well, this really wasn't so terrible, can say, you know, look, people have these dumb beliefs, and that's not what happened. And so I just feel like it's really necessary to be as accurate as you can, even if it doesn't fit the picture that you want it to be. And the sources that we often use, Wikipedia, the news, books, radio, and even the CDC, may present the story in ways that can warp our perception and memory of events. Now, we're not saying that this is going to break any new ground. Everything we're about to tell you is available through resources like reliable internet sources and your local library. But what we are going to do is highlight or expand on what we think are overlooked aspects of the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. Even the topics we've chosen to cover barely scratch that surface. But as we exist in a post-truth era, we have to come to terms with the fact that misinformation has a damaging effect. I was listening to um, national television and one of the anchors on the national news said something about Tuskegee and said the men were infected. And I get on the telephone immediately trying to call. I was actually looking for that clip, Tom Brokaw clip from uh, April 8th, 1997. Yeah. Yeah. Call NBC News to tell them. Let him apologize and make it right. By the Whether end. intentional or unintentional, we all need to work on providing a proper place for context and truth to exist. Our reporting on the Tuskegee Syphilis Study was broken up by the onset of the COVID pandemic in March of 2020. In an overabundance of caution, we halted our travel and interview requests, hoping that the pandemic would let up sooner than later. But time has shown us that that was not the case. As students, we shifted our focus on projects we could complete safely during the pandemic, leaving the study behind. As hundreds of thousands of people died in the U.S. from COVID-19, heartbreaking reports were coming out about not only the rate of deaths, but the demographics associated with those deaths. The CDC reported in August of 2020 that Black or African-American non-Hispanic persons had doubled the rate of deaths from COVID and almost three times the cases. That was months ago, where now cases have only gone up since then. There is a lot of history of the way in which what my colleague Evelyn Hammonds calls the logic of difference. So there's an assumption that what you can see in terms of skin tone difference also goes deeper into the black body or into the white body. And there's just, and that goes back into the 14th and, you know, into the 15th and 16th centuries. And you see it um, in all the medical writing of the 17th and 18th centuries of the assumption that because there is a logic of difference that you, that the medical experience, that the biological experience is different um, and will always be different. And so that still is very much part and parcel of what we're seeing. And now we do understand that certain forms of the context of like, if your body is under constant stress, if you think about the role of racism in causing hypertension and stress in people's bodies, there is a biological consequence of racism 
but there isn't the biological consequence of race itself as a concept. And what really annoyed us was that this was predictable because of a long known problem in our country, lack of access to healthcare. Because of this lack of quality and affordable healthcare in our country, minority communities are suffering as a result, have suffered for years. You were gonna call a doctor in, you would, you know, you'd have to get the money. I mean, you get a real sense of that when um, Charles Johnson did these studies in the late 20s in, from the, for this book called Shadow of the Plantation. And he does it in, in, in Macon County. And those, those interviews that he did with people are in the uh, archives at Fisk in Nashville. And I spent some time there reading them. They were just fascinating. Um, and there's some descriptions in, the, in his book, but also in those interviews where people talked about having no money to pay for physicians or pooling money and borrowing and blah, blah, blah. So the study in the end really is about people who had no access to health care. That makes it much more normative. These are stories we still hear today, where we pool money through crowdfunding apps to afford medical costs, or diabetics skip insulin shots to afford rent. These medical realities have been around for generations forcing people to make decisions about their lives without sufficient access to health care. It would be no surprise then that a study like the Tuskegee syphilis study could take place. The incentives that the study offered far outpaced what was available for rural farmers in Macon County, Alabama through the 1900s. In order for us to move forward, we need to establish a foundation of understanding. I think increasingly people don't know anything about it. And barely know the word, know anything about it. I mean, we're now, you know, almost, you know, what are we, 80 years out from when it first started? So, you no, know, 2020, we're 90 years out yeah. from when it first started practically. So why, and it ended more than, you know, 50 years ago, practically now. So to make sure we were all on the same page, we wanted to introduce you to the story as we first learned it. Then we will explore four parts of the study in more depth. For people whose, whose knowledge of the Tuskegee study came from that HBO film, they got a lot. They got a lot of misinformation. With artistic interpretations of the study dominating our shared memories, specifically Miss Evers' Boys, an HBO film which focuses on the nurse Eunice Rivers from the study, will compare some moments from the film that are counter to what history has to tell us. When you search for the Tuskegee syphilis study online, outside of scholarly journal articles, the first source you find is the CDC, the organization that would become responsible for running the study. The second source you find is from Tuskegee University, the university associated with the study. Both websites contain facts about the case, with the CDC being more selective about their presentation of facts. We have to think and appreciate the incentives that these organizations have in presenting the facts in the way that they do. We have to remember that they are likely presenting their set of facts and not the whole set of facts. 
This is probably not some nefarious conspiracy, but it is a little bit of a spit shine on an otherwise dirty surface. The facts the CDC presents about the study start with this. In 1895, Booker T. Washington, the founder of Tuskegee University, outlines his dream for black economic development and gains support from the Rosenwald Fund. Years later, the Rosenwald Fund provides monies to develop schools, factories, business, and agriculture. Syphilis is seen as a major health problem starting in 1926, with a rate of 35% across the nation, and a major health initiative is started. The Great Depression begins in 1929 while aggressive treatment for syphilis is initiated using mercury and bismuth. The cure rate is less than 30% with treatments requiring months, having side effects that are toxic and fatal. In 1931, the Rosenwald Fund cuts support development projects. Talifer Clark and Raymond Vondelier, physicians with the study, decide to follow the men who were left untreated due to lack of funds in order to show the need for a treatment program. The following year, the Public Health Service, or PHS, began working with the Tuskegee Institute to record the natural history of untreated syphilis for blacks. The CDC has said that only 600 people were involved. Now, while the exact number of participants has varied depending on your source, everyone else seems to agree that over 600 people were involved in the Tuskegee syphilis study. The study was originally projected to last for six months, but the study continued for 40 years and was conducted without the benefit of the patient's informed consent. Robert Moten, president of Tuskegee University at this time, agreed to support the study if Tuskegee Institute gets its full share of the credit and that black professionals are involved. This is when Dr. Dibble and Nurse Rivers are assigned to the study. The first papers suggesting health effects of untreated syphilis are published in 1934. Two years later, the first major paper is published with the study, facing criticism for the first time because it is not known if the men are being treated. During this time in Macon County, local physicians were being asked to assist with the study and not treat the men. Also, during that year, the decision would be made to follow the men until death. Years later, efforts are made to hinder the men from getting treatment that had been ordered under the military draft effort. In 1945, penicillin is accepted as treatment choice for syphilis, and the PHS establishes rapid treatment centers two years later to treat syphilis. The men in the study are not treated, but syphilis in the country declines. By 1962, 127 black medical students were rotated through the unit to work on the study, a process that began in 1947. Concerns are raised about the ethics of the study by Peter Buxton and others in 1968. But a year later, the CDC reaffirms the need for the study and regains local medical society support. In 1972, the first news articles condemn the studies and the Tuskegee Syphilis study ends. The next year, Congress holds hearings and a class action lawsuit was filed on behalf of the study's participants. A $10 million out-of-court settlement is reached and the U.S. government promises to give lifetime medical benefits and burial services to all living participants. Thus, the Tuskegee Health Benefit Program was established to provide these services. In 1975, the wives, widows, and offspring are added to the program, and a whopping two decades later, in 1995, the program was expanded to include health and medical benefits. And finally, on May 16, 1997, President Clinton apologizes on behalf of the, of the nation. People. 
What the United States government did was shameful, and I am sorry. This is where we started. In fact, many of the popular sources we found, like books, podcasts, or articles we read, followed a similar set of points, a similar emphasis, and a familiar chronology. In essence, all of these facts are true, but they're not given a chance to breathe, to let each bit of information tell its own story in the time that it takes. Or even worse, there are assumptions made and words are put into people's mouths. I tried to figure out where it started and I think at one point Rivers even said, so somebody must have asked her, um, were they given the disease? And so I think that, that that's what happens. And also if you look at some of the pictures, one of the things that's really interesting is there were pictures taken in the 1960s. 50s by the government and one of them shows a white physician doing a blood draw but I've seen the picture cropped in a way in which unless you're familiar with medical procedures you might think it looks like he's being given a shot in which case it helps complete the story so there's also a kind of visual um, use of the white hand on a black arm that makes it look like that as well that gets it circulating We started with an ambitious goal of tackling every incidence of misinformation we found, but that would be exhausting for both you and us. So instead, we are here to expand on four parts of the Tuskegee syphilis study. In part one, we are going to go back even further in time, almost another century, to explore what led us to the inception of the syphilis study and the through lines that bring us to today. In part two, we will look more closely at the Public Health Service, the organization that would run the study before the Centers for Disease Control. In part three, we examine and highlight the efforts from one civil rights attorney who, with his team, were determined to, quote, destroy everything segregated that I could find. And in part four, we talk about another secret syphilis experiment that was discovered in 2005 that led to an apology from President Obama in 2010. Now the facts as we learned them were this. You can call me Jean. Okay. All right, Jean. Thank you. And Jean, could you walk us through how you became involved with the Tuskegee syphilis study, please? Uh, I was in Miami Beach for AP covering a national political convention. That's Jean Heller. She's a mystery writer now, but in 1972, she was... An investigative reporter for the Associated Press in Washington, D.C. She was at the 1972 Democratic National Convention being held in Miami Beach, Florida. And a friend of mine and a col- an AP colleague who was based then in San Francisco was contacted by a, a student who was doing work for uh, the Centers for Disease Control, which is what CDC became known as after it ceased being the U.S. Public Health Service. And this young man told my colleague, whose name is Edie Letterer, that he wanted her to look at a couple of letters that he had. And she looked at them and she said, uh, if there's anything to this, uh, I'm not the person who should have them. She was in the process of being transferred to the London Bureau of AP, and she was not assigned as an investigative reporter anyway. So on her way, she she booked her flight to London, so it came through Miami, and she ran up to Miami Beach to the convention site and gave me the letters 
and then went back to the Miami airport and got on a plane for London. Um, I just glanced at the letters, although I thought they, there might be something to them because she made a lot of effort to, to get them to me. And then I just put them in my briefcase because we were really busy. And I showed them to my editor on the airplane on the way back to Washington after the convention ended. And he read them both twice, as I recall. And he said, they're not denying that this is true. And he said, well, as soon as we get back to Washington, to the office, drop everything you've got planned and get right on this. So I did. And that's how it happened. When Jean Heller's story covered the front pages of major newspapers across the country on July 26, 1972, it was a huge story. There are ramifications of the story that are still echoing very loudly around this country. Jean Heller's reporting would create the bedrock of what we first learned about the study in James Jones. One I'm most familiar with because the guys borrowed all of my files to write the book and on the promise that he would return them and he never returned them, so... Oh no! Uh, yeah, he, he, his name is Jones. He wrote Bad Blood. So you're saying that James Jones, the author of Bad Blood, asked for yeah. your files, you gave them all to him, and then he never returned them to you? We rely on these sources heavily for our reporting, but we were also lucky to not only read her book, but to talk with Dr. Susan M. Reverbeam. Um, say and spell your first and last name for us, please, and give us your title. Sure. So it's Susan, S-U-S-A-N. M is the middle initial, um, so it's M period. And the last name is Reverby, like Revere. So it's R-E, B as in Victor, E-R, B as in Boston, Y. I have a long title, but the best way to just say is Professor Emerita um, at Wellesley College. So I'm professor of the history of ideas and, and uh, women and gender studies. Merita from Wellesley College in Wellesley, Massachusetts. And she is the author of Examining Tuskegee, the book that helped us gain perspective about the study. With our cast of characters gathered, we go back to the beginning because... Part one, you have to understand to understand. But I, I don't know if you were struck by this when you talked to like students um, around it. I think increasingly people don't know anything about it. <laughs> 